Um, we made it! Oh my goodness, this, uh, we made it! This is the very first episode of Why We're Sleeping, Art History Class. Ah, can't believe we made it. <laughs> this, this was a, a work in progress. It still is a work in progress. So if you would please bear with me while we go on this little podcast journey together. It's going to be a bit rough, but hopefully over time it will improve. This is a lot harder than I thought it would be. I mean, like, how hard is it to just get a microphone and a laptop and press record? Well, actually really hard. Like, I had to do a lot of research, a lot of troubleshooting, a lot of crying. No, not crying. Kind of crying. But here we are. So thank you for being my very first listeners, all five of you. And yeah, this is the very first episode of Why We're Sleeping, Art History Class. Let's get going, shall we? Who is my very first artist? She is fabulous. She is fierce. She is a badass babe of Baroque, an Italian stallion, Artemisia Genileschi. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> okay, so of course my first artist would be a woman, right? Any any of you who know me, of course I would pick a woman. She is one of, one, one of my most favorite artistic women at that. And when we get into this episode, you're going to see why. Before we begin, though, I want to set off a little warning. There will be some depictions of rape. I'm not going to go into anything graphic or descriptive, but I do just want to put that out there, and I'm not going to gloss over it. It was a very impactful period of her life that produced some pretty amazing artwork after it, and I want to do her justice, and I want to give her the respect that she deserves. There, I will give a little warning before I jump into it, but I just want to let you know ahead of time. So why did I pick her? Thank you for asking. I picked her because she's one of my favorite artists, first of all. And she's just started gaining some recognition outside of the art history world. Unless you've taken maybe an Italian art history class or a women in art history class, she's not really well known outside those circles. And I wanted to highlight an artist of a popular time period of art history, which was the Italian Baroque. She and many other women artists of this period are often overlooked or trivialized because their contribution to the movement was either seen as insignificant or imitating their successful male counterparts. So what is Baroque? Baroque comes from a Portuguese word meaning misshapen pearl. And it's an artistic style that emphasizes movement, motion, dramatic lighting, flourishes, tension, beauty, and elegance, and a dynamic composition, lots of allegories, and lots of Bible imagery. The difference between Baroque and the Renaissance is Baroque has a lot of intricate details and creates a fantasy, a hyper-realistic fantasy. While Renaissance is a fusion of 
Christianity, science, and realism. There's lots of perspective, foreshortening, and in Renaissance architecture you had the golden mean. Baroque was also during the 16th through the 18th century, while Renaissance was during the 14th through 17th century. Also, Baroque, little side note, as much as I love Artemisia, the time period that she came from, Baroque, it's too much for me. Like, oh my goodness, just it's so, you know, it's so extra. And don't even get me started on Rococo, which was a little time period after Baroque. It was like if you put Baroque on Adderall and LSD and gave it a canvas and <laughs> it was too much, it's too much. But I, I won't get into that. It was a beautiful time period in art and architecture. The most popular artists of the Baroque were Rembrandt. He painted a lot of very stark landscapes and his most famous piece or one of the most famous pieces he did was called The Night Watch. Then you have Rubens. He did an Adam and Eve portrait that was quite famous. He also was well known for his voluptuous woman. And he had a lot of Bible stories that were very fantastical. Then you have Bernini, my dad's favorite. I think it's because his name is just Bernini. He was a Baroque architect. He did the Ecstasy of St. Teresa in Rome his own version of the Statue of David, and he also did the Colonnade of Saint statues in St. Peter's Square. You have the Spanish painter Velázquez, whose most famous work is Las Maninas. I've seen it in person at the Prado. It's really something. Like, you, know, you see these things in textbooks and you read papers written about them, but then to see an, a work in person, is a little bit overwhelming. Also, like, it kind of looked bigger than I thought, but also smaller than I thought, if that could be a thing. Then there was also Caravaggio, who was the the it Italian guy of Baroque painting, and he was really well known for his dark light and dark values. He, of course, like many of his people, <laughs> Many of his fellow artists created a lot of Bible imagery and allegories. He was a bit of a violent man. He was he killed someone in a duel and was exiled, which is really kind of one of the most baroque things I've ever heard. It's so dramatic. Also, there was a bit of controversy with his painting, and one of his paintings he painted the bottom of Jesus's feet. And at the time, there was a lot of mixed reception because for some reason, it was really odd to paint the bottom of his feet. Like you can paint him totally bruised and broken and dead and bloodied, but you can't paint the bottom of his feet. It was some weird thing. Like, I guess it humanized him too much. So yeah, he did that. Those were the male stars of the time period. Now we'll get into this female star, Artemisia Genelewski. Who is she? Well, she was um, born 
to Italian painter Orazio Gentileschi. He was a well-known painter in his community of artists, but he wasn't really well-known to the Roman audience. And he was a devout follower of Caravaggio, and he imitated his techniques of chiaroscuro, which was the technique of creating high contrasts of light and dark with the subjects within his painting, which made a very melodramatic and striking effect. Her father recognized her artistic talents very early on, and at the time the only options for a woman were to be a housewife, but he, she was very adamant and um, ambitious with her painting and convinced her father to cultivate her talent. Her first known piece is called Susanna and the Elders around 1610 and she painted this when she was about 15-16 years old. It tells a story of Susanna from the book of Daniel from the Old Testament. Susanna is a married woman and goes to bathe in her private garden and sends her servants away for some privacy. What she doesn't know is that two elderly judges have crept their way into the garden and watch her get undressed. When she is fully nude, they ambush her and say either she sleeps with them or they were accuse her of adultery, which is a crime punishable by death. Susanna, not really seeing a way out of this situation, she screams. And when she screams, her servants rush to her aid and see her alone, naked, and with these men. They accuse her of adultery, and she is sent to trial. During the trial, the elders say she attempted to seduce them, but they, being pious and religious and steadfast men, refused her and brought her to be condemned. Susanna doesn't really protest because she knows that her truth will be ignored because she's a woman and rarely was a woman's word taken to truth. It's only when she's being away, led away to die that the hero of the story, Daniel, hears her prayer to God and stops him from killing her. In the painting by Artemisia, Susanna, with her fair skin and Venus-like figure and golden curly hair, sits on a stone step in front of a three-foot wall, fully nude except for a cloth that covers her lady bits. Two elder men are huddled together and are leaning over the wall into Susanna's personal space, appearing to proposition her. Her legs are rotated away from them in an attempt to save some dignity and privacy. Her chest is turned towards the men, hands and arms outstretched in their direction. She is simultaneously trying to shield herself and interrupt their male gaze. Finally, her face is turned away in the same direction as her legs, and she looks frightened, disgusted. The viewer can clearly see the situation that is occurring, which is the violation of Susanna. Artemisia depicts the story of Susanna as a victim. Rather than showing Susanna as coy or flirtatious as many male artists had painted the scene where like Susanna is 
not really trying to hide from them. She's aware of their presence and wants to put on a little show. Oh my goodness, I can't believe you just saw me naked. I'm so embarrassed, but please look some more. She's kind of painted like a tease a little bit. Artemisia doesn't paint her that way because she understands the situation. She takes the female perspective and portrays Susanna as vulnerable, frightened, and repulsed, while the men loom large, leering, and menacing. This is her first dated and signed work, and it's so technically and thoughtfully mature for a young woman of this time that many others contributed the success of the work to her father, claiming he composed the majority of the painting due to the advanced accuracy with which she paints the body and the construction of the piece. But in fact, he was merely a guide and a tutor to the artistry and not the artist itself. Because women, of course, couldn't be great on their own, they had to rely on the talents of men to produce something halfway decent. And if they did accomplish something on their own, their success was diminished or downplayed and deemed worthless because of their gender. Also, her father, there's no way her father could have, like, accurately portrayed the distress that Susanna feels in this situation, because, one, he's not a woman, a man doesn't know how a woman's going to feel, and two, he wasn't really known for that sensitivity to the subject the way that Artemisia could be. Also, there are some people that believe she posed for the painting herself, and the anatomical correctness is due to her copying the shapes of her own body. And this is the painting that is accepted without dispute as being the first autographed painting by Artemisia. Her signature can be found in the shadow that's being cast by Susanna's leg, and she made sure the viewer could have no doubt that this was her work. So what is the significance of a signature? The fashion of signing one's work started with the Renaissance and continues to present day. It's a way to identify the artist and worked as a note to the artists themselves that their work is finished, which any painter, sculptor, musician, or writer will tell you, it's a great feat to accomplish because to some an artist's work is never finished. A signature is a proclamation to the world that this piece will no, no longer need reworking. I am done, it's complete, here you go, kind of thing. Even though Artemisia hides her signature in the shadow of Susanna's legs, it's placed there intentionally to not distract from the narrative of the work, but she is contributing her voice to the message of the story. Some artists would sign the back of their paintings as a gesture of humility, but not our girl Artemisia. She signed 19 of her 48 works, and that's a pretty high number compared to her fellow painters of the time. Although the spelling of her name remains fairly consistent, the way she signed her paintings was the purpose of enhancing her image 
and to capture the interests of her patrons. There would be variances in spelling, placement, and technique. Sometimes it would appear to be carved or etched into background materials and showcase her skills to the public into understanding her capabilities as a painter, and it also broadcasted her gender. She was not afraid to be like, I am woman, hear me roar, kind of person. Okay, here's where we get into the not-so-fun stuff. Horacio, her father, painted frescoes with the artist Agostino Tassi. Orazio was still a lesser-known artist in Rome and was using Tossi and his community to publicize his name. They worked together as artists, and Orazio enlisted Tossi's help to teach his daughter perspective. During these lessons, Tossi would harass Artemisia and proposition her and continued to find ways to be alone with her. And at one point he succeeded, and when he did, he raped her. And she was 18 at the time. He promised to marry her soon after, and because of this promise, continued to demand sexual favors. When her father found out Tossi was arrested, Artemisia was thrust into, like, a media shitstorm and she received considerable publicity, and it really ruined her reputation. During the trial, Tossi and those who followed him and his friends really trashed Artemisia. She was accused of not having been a virgin at the time of the rave and of having many lovers before him. She was examined by midwives in the trial, in public viewing of everybody to determine whether or not she had been deflowered. And at one point, Tossi said that Artemisia was a talentless whore. The trial lasted over seven months and was just the ruin of her and her family. During her testimony, she was tortured with these thumbscrew devices that were designed to tighten and break fingers to ensure a witness was telling the truth. As any artist will tell you, your hands are your life. She was well aware that doing this would possibly subject her to no longer being able to paint, but because she was so adamant about the truth, she willingly went through this grueling questioning because she was very determined to make sure this man did not go free. And despite her testimony, her father's and Tossie's history of violence, he also raped his sister-in-law and put a hit out on his wife for murder. Tossie was only charged to serve one year, and upon his release, rejoined her father's artistic community. After the trial, Artemisia was married off and sent to live in Florence with her new husband, who was also an artist. And this is where she was inspired to paint the first version of one of her most famous pieces, if not the most famous piece, which is Judas slaying Holofernes. Okay, so let's pause and go into a little story time. I forgot where I first heard of her, but I know I heard of her by the time I got to Italy in 2015 for my summer study abroad. 
They don't do this in Florence anymore, but we had purchased a city museum pass that will let us skip the lines and get into every museum in Florence for free. Like every single museum that was patroned by the city of Florence, and it was super cool. <laughs> like while everyone else was standing in line in the hot Tuscan sun and humidity, my class and I would be staring at masters like Donatello, Raphael, and Michelangelo before lunch. But halfway through the trip, the tourist commission canceled the passes, which limited free entrance from like dozens of museums to maybe two. Luckily, we could still visit the Uffizi, which is one of the only reasons people really go to Florence, other than the Duomo. And I was super pumped because the Uffizi had my favorite work, Judas playing Hello Friends. When we got to the Uffizi, I was already like super impatient to get to her. Because I was just, I was so, so, so excited. My professor, who was super awesome and one of the best non-Italian tour guides in Italy, was taking his time walking us around the main floors that had all the early Renaissance guys, like Fra Angelico and some other guys, I can't remember. Like, by this point, we were maybe like the second or third week into the trip. So I was just super saturated with renaissance at this point and i know it was like an italian arts and culture class but i was so over renaissance i was ready to get to the fun stuff we stopped to see botticelli's birth of venus and primavera which was cool and all but i was like okay where's my girl artemisia at okay sidebar i wasn't really whatever about botticelli venus was beautiful and i stopped to admire the greatness before me but I was getting, I was getting antsy. And I'm also one of like the worst people to take to museums because I always wander off and do my own thing because I know what I'm looking for. And I don't have the patience to look at one more gilded altarpiece by some obscure friar of Madonna and Child. Like there's only so many ways you can do that. Finally, my group gets to the Baroque painting room and I'm super pumped because this means I finally get to fulfill an art historian dream of mine, and any of you art kids know, we all have that art bucket list of paintings we have to see before we die, and this was one of them. So when I get into the room, I look around, and I don't see her. Where is she? This is why I'm here. This was a day I've been looking forward to. I'm a little confused. I'm thinking, like, are we in the right room? Because <laughs> I see Caravaggio, but I don't see anyone else. So you know where she was? She was in a freaking corner. A corner. This greatness deserves a shrine with a spotlight on it in her own room. Anyway, I rushed over and I was in awe because it was real. It was real. There she was, Judith. She was determined and strong and slaying Holofernes. And there was blood and panic and it was gonna... Ugh. It was beautiful. Like, I had... A legit emotional response to that piece and honestly that's what art needs to be find some art if it makes you cry great okay just find art that makes you cry find art that wants that makes you like just heavy breathing kind of thing Ugh, it was so great I couldn't get over how great it was so brief background on the story of Judith from the book of Judith in the Old Testament hello Phrenes was a general in the Assyrian army who had been decimating the Israelites in previous stories, and they were on the brink of attacking 
the city of Bithulia, where our heroine lives as a widow on the outskirts of town. The Jewish people and its army are weakened, frightened, and desperately need a boost in morale. So enter the mysterious, beautiful, and intelligent Judith. She comes to the mag magistrates of the town who have arranged a five-day ceasefire in the hopes that during those five days there will be a divine intervention from God and he will deliver his people to victory. Judith is unsatisfied with doing nothing. So she takes it upon herself to construct a plan, and with her maid, Abra, she goes to Holofernes' camp, dressed up in the finest fabrics, jewelry, makeup, she's smelling good, she looks sumptuous. Okay. Naturally, Holofernes is quite taken with her, and on the fourth night, there's a feast to celebrate the Assyrians' upcoming victory. Holofernes takes Judith to his quarters, in an attempt to seduce her, but passes out drunk. It is at this point that Judith prays to God for strength. She says, Lord God, to whom all strength belongs, prosper what my hands are now to do for the greater glory of Jerusalem. For now is the time to recover your heritage and to further my plans to crush the enemies arrayed against us. And then what does she do? She cuts off his head. She and her maid escape in the night, carrying his head, and bring it back to show the magistrates at Bavulia. Upon seeing the general decapitated, the Jews are reinvigorated and attack the Assyrian army, and they are victorious, and Judith is hailed as a hero until her death. Yay! Good job, Judith. So how does Artemisia depict this story? She's not the first artist to do it, but she is one of the first women to do it, and her portrayal is one of the most controversial due to its violent imagery. It also details a story from the point of view of Judith, and there hasn't really been a woman's interpretation up until this point. First thing the viewer sees is Holofernes' head. It's twisted grotesquely away from his body and facing away from Judith and her maid. His eyes are open, but they're losing their light, and his mouth is hung open in terror. His arms are outstretched and are taking hold of Judah's servant, Abra, who is tasked with holding him down, but his struggles, you know, there's no point. Judith, with one leg on the bed for leverage, is dragging her sword across Holofernes' neck, and she's grabbing his beard with her left hand so fiercely you can see the tension in her knuckles. Her face is not disgusted, she's determined, her brow is furrowed, and she's focused. She's not even wincing at the blood that's like soaking the bed sheets or spraying out of his neck. Unlike other painters, even her beloved Caravaggio, who's known for his depiction of violence, he painted Judith as this very young looking woman. Like she's very small and she's kind of like a, a damsel who looks a bit grossed out at what she's doing. Artemisia paints her as this strong, thick force of a woman and she has her sleeves pushed up and she's ready to get to work. The best part of this piece is Holofernes' face is the face of her rapist. This work has long been seen as an act of revenge by art historians. Her catharsis and reaction to her traumatic rape and subsequent trial. However, she uses her subject Judith to 
champion the strength of women and of the human spirit. She possibly identifies similarities between herself and Judith, because Judith, like Artemisia, was not a conventional woman. She was a hero, she was powerful, and she didn't let the opinion of men dictate how she lived her life. She took charge of her own destiny, as corny as that sounds, because she knew what she was capable of, and she knew her skill, and she knew the best way to bring victory. There are differences in how Judith paints two versions of this story. The first version was painted in 1610-1611, which was right after the trial. And then the second version was painted almost a decade later, during what was known as Artemisia's Gold Period. In the first version, she paints Judith in a blue dress, and the colors are a bit more muted. Proportionally, the figures are off. Judith and her maid are nearly the same size as Holofernes. The three figures take up the entirety of the canvas. Her composition kind of lacks a focal point. Your eye is drawn to the beheading, but it doesn't stay there. The There's less blood, and the contrast between light and dark is subtle, though not lacking in drama, because who are we kidding? The second version, Judith is wearing a gold gown with burgundy details on her sleeve. Her maidservant also wears a burgundy dress, and the blankets covering Holofernes are the same shade of a blood red that spurts from his neck. And it, in doing this, she unifies the composition and creates a focal point on the beheading. The figures are more proportional to one another, and the balance of light and shadows is a lot more dramatic. It's very stark, and you can clearly see the distress that is being caused to Holobrenes. In the second piece, there's more of a extended background space that's created. On the right side, Artemisia writes, she signs it as Ego Artemisia Lomi F.E.C. Lomi is her father's former surname before he changed it to the more Roman Genileschi, and one she used frequently when she worked in Florence and Naples. This signature she paints translates to, and get ready for this, I, Artemisia Genileschi, made this. Writing her signature in this way states the boldness and the agency she had as a painter and really emphasizes her gender. She's the author of this work, of the depiction of the decapitation, since she chose this scene in this story for her Judith. The verb she used to sign the work is also, like, a big deal. During the time period, it was common for artists to sign their work in the tense that was Fasibat, F-A-C-I-E-B-A-T, which puts their work in a past tense, but it kind of suggests that the work isn't really quite done. Like, the artist could always go back to this piece if they wanted to. But she signed it Fecit, F-E-C-I-T, which presented the artwork as completely and utterly, without question, like, yes, you go girl, yes, yes, you finished that piece. 
This was her declaration of pride and confidence in her abilities and to hell with modesty bask in my Judith Swang Holofernes glory. In around 1612 to 1613, she painted Judith and her maidservant, which was a year after the end of the trial. It's a painting that portrays the immediate aftermath of Holofernes beheading. Her maid has her back to the viewer, but she's hoisting a basket on her left hip, which has Holofernes' severed head peeking through under a little napkin covering. And Judith stands with her shoulders squared off, sword in hand against her shoulder, standing tall and triumphant. It's not only a hero's pose, but it is a man's pose. Judith and Abra have just killed Holofernes and are preparing to decamp with their prize. And at a tense moment, they re it looks like they're reacting to a sound off canvas. Perhaps, you know, you hear like stirring or somebody's walking around. And many male artists have depicted Judith as standing triumphant with his head, but Artemisia chooses to capture a moment in time and an action moment that really furthers the narrative post-beheading and captures the danger and the risk that Judith and her mate are undertaking so that her people may have a chance at victory. That's one of the things I really like about Artemisia is that there's no stoic posing. There's a narrative to her work. There's an action to her work, which is typical of Baroque. She doesn't paint passive subjects. She doesn't paint passive women, and that's something that I really enjoy. Her women are heroes, as women should be. In addition to this portrayal, there's an ornament in her hair, Judith's hair, that features a picture of a man with a lance and shield, which just has been interpreted as David, who killed Goliath, and he's the male equivalent of Judith. And the image honors one of the landmarks um, in the Piazza in Florence, which is Michelangelo's statue of David, who Artemisia took a lot of influence from. Artemisia's unique portrayal of Judith has prompted, and her mates has prompted scholars to argue that Artemisia identified with the protagonist of the story in a way her male counterparts did not. The association stems not only from their shared gender, but also from Artemisia's own experience. When she was 17, she had a maid, and Tassi had actually conspired with the maid to get Artemisia and Tassi alone. So in a way, so she felt betrayed by this woman who was tasked with protecting her. In the first version of Judas slaying Holofernes by Artemisia, the maid's participation reflects the what Artemisia wanted from her protector in her real life. Unlike Caravaggio, who portrays Judas maid as old, frail, prone. She's not participating in this at all. She's just kind of standing there looking like she wants to shuffle off camera or take a nap or something. Artemisia's portrayal of the maid is youthful, strong, and she's fully engaged in assisting Judith. She really 
helps Judith. She truly comes to her aid when Judith needs her the most. In the second version, there is a bracelet, and in one of the cameos on Judith's bracelet appears to depict Artemis, her namesake, who is the ancient goddess of both chastity and the hunt. So let's skip ahead a decade or so. <laughs> uh, I only really wanted to cover four selected works. She has many others, of course, but these are the four that speak to me most, and these are the four where I feel you really get a sense of Artemisia as a person. In about 1630, she painted what I think is one of her greatest works. It's not really that well known. It's called Self-Portrait as the Allegory of Painting. So what is the allegory of painting? It's from Cesare Ripa's Iconologica, which was written in 1611, and he describes painting. Painting is a beautiful woman, of course, <laughs> with black hair that's a bit messy and twisted into various plates. Her eyebrows are furrowed and thought, and her mouth is covered with a cloth tied behind the ears, and she's wearing a gold chain with a mask as a pendant that hangs from her neck. The cloth around the mouth is there to symbolize the non-verbal communication that painters are limited to in their work. So what is Artemisia's interpretation? It's so good. It's so good, you guys. Like, she's posed with her body facing left, brush in her right hand put to the canvas, and her left hand holds her palette. She wears a lush green emerald dress and is covered by a brown apron to keep it from getting stained. Her sleeves that are also green, kind of this emerald green, uh, appear to shimmer in the light and change shades within the folds of the fabric. She has on the long gold chain, her hair is black and it's tied back in a bun, and she has loose tendrils that are framing her face, depicting her laboring for her art. Artemisia, for obvious reasons, foregoes the gag around the mouth. So, with this interpretation, what is she saying? By painting this self-portrait, Artemisia is painting. She is painting. It's not an allegory. She is. I am. Gentileschi took a very incredibly egotistical stand, and it was brilliant. To say that she was not only a female painter at a time when women were not even admitted into artistic academies, she was the first woman to be admitted to the Florence School of Design, by the way, but as a female painter, as a very embodiment of painting, she's conveying a sense of pride to her work, and she's very proud in the piece. She's an artist at work. She has a raised chin. She shows herself focused on the act of painting. She is in pursuit of a noble goal of fulfillment, of personal achievement, and I am ensuring happiness through my own means. It's very sophisticated for an artist. A lot of artists who painted themselves as the allegory of painting, they were posed, looking towards the viewer, and they had the tools of their trade 
painted maybe off to the side or something, but she chose to paint herself in the action of painting. And the pose that she paints herself in, extremely difficult to capture, but it's very, it's painted very, very well with very few inaccuracies. In order to view her own image, she may have arranged two mirrors in order to see herself in this pose. And it's a very challenging pose, and the angle of position of her head would have been the hardest part to accurately render, but she does it almost, well, she does it perfectly. Perfectly. And artists like to use light and dark as a way to emphasize a narrative in their piece, or to emphasize a personality or trait about the subject. There is a shadow behind Artemisia, and there is a light in front of her, and the light is brightest on the hand that is to the canvas, and it's brightest on her face and her forehead. So the light on her head is very deliberate. By putting it there, she is signifying her intelligence. She's not afraid to shy from who she is. She's very self-aware, she's very proud, and she's saying, look at me, look what I can do, look how great I am at it, and I'm proud. Like, I'm a woman, I'm an artist, I'm pretty badass. She was so confident in her work, and it really shows in this painting. You really get a sense of her personality and how she was such a force of a woman. And she believed it was important to portray the importance of women in their pieces. Ugh, it was just, gosh, she's so fabulous, y'all. Like, where does that come from? How do you do that? It's, it's hard enough now, but a woman growing up, in that time period when you were expected to be silent and you didn't work and you didn't have any responsibilities, she really made herself great. She was full of ambition, full of drive, full of talent, and she didn't let she didn't let society stop her. She was fabulous. Also, if she was in Hogwarts, she would totally be a Slytherin, because who are we getting? Sorry, Harry Potter tidbit. <sighs> Later in life, she joined her father on a commission in England for Charles I. After he passed away, she stayed in England to finish their work. She had four children, but only one survived to adulthood, a daughter. Although the daughter didn't inherit her mother's work ethic or love of painting, unfortunately. Artemisia returned to Naples in 1642 and continued to paint for various patrons. One of her patrons was actually um, the Duke Cosimo de' Medici while she was in Florence. And she earned a living through her art until her mysterious death in 1652 or 1653. It's a little bit difficult to determine. There are some reports that she committed suicide, but I believe this to be false. Upon her death, there were many testimonies and stories from a male aristocrats and press that continue to trash her name and reputation for her art. I think it's due to 
a lot of the themes in her paintings where women were struggling against the patriarchy and the power of men. And cowards couldn't say this to my face. They had to wait until I was dead. I think that for someone who, as I've explained in her paintings and as you can see in her other work, suicide seems more like something that could have been made up by her haters in a way to shame her and to kind of get their petty revenge on her. But she was fantastic. It seems so out of character for a woman of that magnitude to commit suicide. But that's just what I think. So where is she now? What is she doing? Well, she was the focus of a major exhibition in May 2017 in Rome, where over 30 of her paintings were on exhibit, including the Gold Judith on loan from the Uffizi. Two years ago, famous art auction house Sotheby's in New York sold a painting of hers for over $1 million. She's had numerous exhibitions in London and Paris. She has paintings all over Europe and permanent installations, which are still on display. And she's getting a bunch of recognition that she finally deserves. A lot more people are getting into the research behind Artemisia and her work. And Artemisia's life, I think, has inspired other art historians and art lovers to seek out women of this time period. It suddenly inspired me to look at more women of this time period. When the men were in the spotlight, they were talented and fabulous and women with conviction who continued to make art their life's work, even though at time society was telling them they couldn't. I think the reason that it's taken so long for her to get this recognition is simply put, she was a woman. That's really all that explains it, because once she passed, her artistry was forgotten up until maybe the mid, 20th, mid to late 20th century, when her work was rediscovered. It's really a shame, because she was, she was very interesting, and she was powerful, and non-conventional, and she wasn't afraid to be her, which is something that a lot of us really need in this time period. So, thank you for listening. That was our first episode. I did it, I think. We'll see when I get some reviews from all you wonderful listeners, all five of you, including my parents. <laughs> oh, I have a Facebook now. It is while you were sleeping, our history class, I think you can at me, at Liana's Art History. There I posted the pictures that I discussed in this podcast. I also have an Instagram called while you were sleeping underscore AHC. And I'll be posting some images there and some interesting exhibits going on. And I hope to, oh, I'll also add my sources to my Facebook page. Yeah, there's that. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I tried to make it a little bit fun, but informative. If there's any reviews, please let me know. Oh, and I'm also on Google Play at under Liana G or Liana's Art History or While You're Sleeping. 
I don't know. I'm not really sure how Google Play works, but I'll find the podcast and I'll put it on my Facebook page so you can find the link. Yay! We did it! Thank you! Bye!